complementarianism. This is not necessarily something you can fit on a t-shirt or even fit on a hashtag, right? Because uh, sometimes our theological language is a bit clunky, but nonetheless functional, right? Complementarianism is a functional word as the name implies. Complementarianism is the belief, the practice that God made men and women to complement one another, to go together, each serving a different role but working together in that role. And uh, so we're going to look together at complementarianism. The, the opposite of complementarianism, if, if you've read this or heard this term, is called egalitarianism. And, and egalitarians would say that there, there should be no role distinction between men and women, either in society or in the church or in the home. So those are sort of the two camps. Um, and and there, there are Christians that are ascribing to both of these uh, understandings of Scripture. So let's look more closely at complementarianism. That, that's what our church believes, and, and I believe this is the most faithful understanding of the text of the Bible as we think about these things. Why are we talking about this? We're, we're talking about this because there are present-day threats to complementarianism. In other words, there are things going on, not just in society, but in the church and even within the church, as the church debates and deals with issues like critical theory, like abuse, like liberal theology, feminism, and other things uh, that started last century, these are threats, these are challenges to the biblical view of roles in the home and in the church. And what, what, what sparked this most recently, you know, 50 years ago, the debate was feminism. The onset of the feminist movement of the 1900s and women's liberation and whatnot. And that, you know, you guys, have, you guys know your church history. Whatever's happening in the culture ends up in the church in the next generation. That's, that's just historically what happens. So as feminism is gaining credibility and ground in the culture, well, guess what happens just a few years later? Now you've got feminism reshaping and redefining doctrines in local churches. And that's why, and maybe some of you grew up in a traditional denomination, maybe a Methodist or a Baptist or something like that, and that's why most of those denominations in the 20th century moved liberal in their theology. It was because of movements like the feminist movement that did that, and that's why you know, the Methodist Church, for example, started by guys like Charles and John Wesley and George Whitfield, who were complementarians. Uh, that's why today the Methodist Church, it's very common to see women that are ordained as pastors in the church. That was the, the influence of 20th century liberal theology. But more recently, we have things like abuse and critical theory that are putting pressure on the church and, and um, reshaping and redefining some of the ways that we understand uh, what's going on in Scripture. Um, I, ju- I just did a, a Google search, and I do this because I love you guys. Okay, I just, do a, I just did a Google search on biblical roles right, and, um, and abuse. Biblical roles and abuse. Here's some of the headlines just from that simple Google search. Rigid gender roles and stereotypes drive and perpetuate violence against women. Gender roles need to change to stop violence. Harmful masculinity and violence, or you guys have heard this, toxic masculinity. That's the new buzzword. Okay, there is a electromagnetic field right here, and every time I step there, it's going to do that. So I'm just going to stand right here, okay? Turn my thing there. Okay. Um, 
Gender roles can create lifelong cycles of inequality. You've heard of patriarchy and power. And I actually clicked on one of these articles. This was an article actually about John Piper, where John Piper was arguing that biblical roles, biblical complementarianism, is actually the way we protect women from abuse. And it's a great, it's an Ask Pastor John podcast for those of you that follow uh, Ask Pastor John, and, and uh, it's a great article. But uh, the, the, re- the reporter that's writing this article is interacting with this John Piper podcast, and, and they, they found some, some expert somewhere that, that, that said this, because complementarian theology promotes a power differential between men and women, it fosters the sort of abuse of power that devolves into sexual abuse. Do you get what she's saying? She's saying if you believe and practice biblical roles in the Bible, you're creating a, an environment that has to turn into abuse at some point. And just in case you missed it in that a little more nuanced comment, here's how she concludes the article. This theology, biblical roles, feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Now, my first thought was, what's this rape culture in American Christianity? I mean, what is that even about? Um, Now, I want to put here and be very honest the world is not reacting against this because there's no data and they're totally making it up. It is true, and one of the sad realities of what we've discovered in the last 10 years as this has become more popular in discussion is that there have been many, many, many Christian women that are being abused in their homes under the guise of submission. And men, Christian Christian men, at least in name, that are abusing their wives under the guise of, I'm the leader, I'm the head. That's what the Bible says. And we need to categorically say that that is wrong and wicked and sinful. That's not biblical roles. That's not biblical complementarianism. That's an abuse of those things. It's a perversion of of biblical roles. Uh, We we also would want to say that in the church, when the church is led by, by... qualified godly men when when we say that we we know now that there are many many churches many members of churches that are being taken advantage of in an inappropriate way by church leaders Uh, i mean just uh, the 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 scandal of the last 20 years where uh, the catholic church alone uh, all these all these men that have come out saying their priests were abusing them is horrible um, so we, we, we want to we be humble and honest enough to say, as we have this conversation, that there's some truth to these claims. And, and there is needed adjustment that biblical roles in the home are not dynamics that ought to produce abuse or allow for abuse to go undetected. And uh, as Christians... The way we're going to correct this is not just by teaching what the biblical roles actually teach, but even more so by modeling what these roles ought to look like in the home. What that means is for those of us that are men, we are leading as the leaders in our home in gentleness and love and encouragement and in nurture and in servant leadership, sacrificing ourselves to help our family and to serve our family. Uh, that we don't misuse our power, we don't misuse our authority. 
Um, and, and as women, we'd say that, that biblical submission is not a horrible thing. It's not restrictive. It's not, um, it, it's not communicating any sort of inequality. It's God's good design and both Godly servant leadership for men and godly respectful submission for women is God's plan for human flourishing in the home. It's what's best for all of us. But as is so often the case in our sin and in a broken world, those things get perverted and get distorted. So as, as we, as we respond to some of these threats and the things that people are saying, and you guys know this, some of you read these on blogs, and, and you know this is a big conversation in the church, uh, we need to acknowledge, you know what, there is some truth to this, and we need to make correction where it's needed. But we do not throw out the baby with the bathwater. The problem is not the biblical roles in the Bible. The problem is that those roles have been perverted and practiced in a sinful way in some cases. And that's what we need to say, and that's what we need to live. Okay, so with that in mind, uh, let's look very briefly at, at a crash course on biblical complementarity, okay? And uh, my name's Keith, I'm going to be your tour guide, and I'm going to take the plane up to 30,000 feet very quickly, and we're going to go fast, we're going to do a jet tour through this. But uh, again, a lot of this will be review, but hopefully this will be helpful in regard to how we need to respond to the conversation happening in the church and in the culture. First of all, the, the, way, the way we could best describe complementarity is to simply say this, that God designed men and women to be equal but different. Equal but different. And, and that's not my term. Uh, many other writers have used that, John Piper and Wayne Grudem most recently. Uh, but let's turn in our Bibles just very briefly to Genesis chapter 1. As we, uh, as we parachute into the creation week, we go right to day six, to the highlight of day six, where God makes men and women in His image, in His likeness. Everything else has been made, the whole universe, it's been, uh, created and, and, and populated, and, and this is it, right? This is the last, the final act of creation, as God says in chapter one, verse 26. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, meaning mankind, people, the human race, male and female, he created them. And we've talked about this recently in terms of gender, that God designed gender, that's his invention. Gender reflects the image of God, and, and, and one of the many reasons why we don't believe it is right or appropriate to start talking about gender being something that a person just... Um, arrives at or concludes based on their own feelings or their own emotions or their own desires is because gender is designed by God to be a static reality that's represented because they are image bearers made in the image and likeness of God. So we, we don't have the freedom to change gender because it's fixed in the fact that we are made as image bearers before the Lord. As it relates to complementarity, we, we recognize that men and women are made equal in person and in essence, right? They're both made in the image and likeness of God. There's dignity, there's respect, there's value, there's worth that is equal for both men and women because they both bear the image of God. Um, you don't need to turn there, but uh, Paul uh, applies this reality to salvation. He's going to say whether you're male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free, all are one in Christ. <clears throat> and that does not 
deny or discount that there are gender differences and different roles, but it nonetheless is saying that both men and women, as they would trust Christ, have an equality in terms of their relationship with God through the person of Jesus. Um, there's an equal an equality in salvation. And yet, as we're going to see in the rest of Genesis, there is a difference in function and role. You say, well, where do we see that? Well, if we keep reading in the story, and I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm going to do the nickel tour here of Genesis 1 and 2. You know the story. Uh, we see as we, we keep reading that Adam was designed by God to be the leader in the relationship. You say, how do we know that? Because he was created first. That doesn't make him better, but it does communicate his leadership. The design for God of God to make him the leader in the relationship. He's given the task to tend the garden in chapter 2, verse 15. He's the recipient of God's commands and warnings in verses 16 and 18. He's called to name the animals. And finally, he is the bearer of final responsibility in the home. When Adam and Eve sin, who bears the brunt of the responsibility, even though Eve was the one who talked to Satan, Eve was the one that took the fruit, Eve was the one to eat first... God says, Adam, you're ultimately responsible because he was the leader in the relationship. And we see that even here in the book of Genesis. Notice also, looking back, as Eve is made for Adam in the relationship, Eve was designed by God to be the primary helper or influencer. I love that word. God designed women to be the primary influencer in the relationship, helping her husband. I think I think when a Christian woman or maybe a non-Christian woman hear, hears that you know women are supposed to submit and and they're not the leader, I, I, I think that they they misunderstand God's intention. That's a role of distinction. That's a role of honor. That that's a role of prominence. Because what God is saying is, this dear man that you married is called to be the leader, but he can't do that by himself. He needs your help. He needs your influence, your assistance in that. And that is a glorious thing. God created from Adam, right? God created Eve from Adam and for him. Again, we remember this, right? God designs Adam for the work. God makes Eve to be directed toward Adam. So he's oriented toward the work and calling of God. She's oriented toward him to help him to fulfill the responsibilities that God calls them to in their marriage and in their family. We notice also in the narrative that she's designed to be the helper corresponding to him. Chapter 2, verse 18, God says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. That word suitable is where we get the idea of complementarity. The idea that they, they, they bring different strengths to the relationship and together they complement each other. They, they make one another stronger. It's that idea of corresponding to him, helping him, complementing him in that way. And she's made, as we find in verse 24 of chapter 2, to be one with Adam. This is not uh, a, a divisive team. This is not she's going that way and he's going the other way and they kind of do their own thing. Sadly, a lot of marriages act like that, don't they? Right? He, she's doing her thing, he's doing his thing. and That's not God's design. God's design that though they have different interests and they have different opinions and they have different ideas about things, that they would come together in the oneness that their marriage is designed to represent and they would work together, complementing each other, to walk with God and to bring Him glory in their life. 
So she's made to be one with Adam. And notice, she's capable of significant influence, isn't she? Uh, This is a negative example, but don't let the fact that it's a negative example make us miss the obvious. Eve is capable of huge influence to Adam, to their marriage, to their family. And, and we know, we know as we, as we would read about godly women in scripture, as we read about the Proverbs 31 woman, godly wives, uh, people that assisted, um, uh, elders and pastors in the New Testament, that, that godly women in the Bible and in church history have a huge, significant role of influence. It's not a lesser role, it's an important role, and that influence is significant. Okay, so with that basic idea that men and women are created equal yet different, we see that um, really anchored in the Genesis narrative, the creation there. Let's now talk about those those actual individual roles, and we'll start first with the husband's role. Um, I love this picture. Um, This picture exemplifies... This picture exemplifies, uh, how do I get rid of that? Okay, there it goes. It's slowly going away. So this picture exemplifies the biblical role of the husband. Husbands are called to emulate Jesus. They're called to be like Christ. Uh, Not just physically, but spiritually, you say, what do we mean? Husbands are to be like Christ in their character. Husbands are to be like Christ in their doctrine. And husbands are to be like Christ in their role. And those, those are the three dimensions of how a husband, how a godly man is called to be like Jesus in his marriage. Okay, so let's look at those uh, very briefly, um, but just to get an idea of what this is about, okay? The, the first area, if, if we turn in our Bible to... Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, where we're going to just kind of park for a little while talking about the, the role of the husband, is that husbands are called to be like Christ in their character. We, we could say this, guys, to, to the men here, we need to develop Christ-like character. Now, now look at this. Uh, th- this is one of those verses that if you really understand what the Bible is claiming, it, it is going to it is going to take the, the air out of your lungs for a minute. It, it is shocking and overwhelming at what God is saying. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Did you get it? Husbands are called to be like Christ in their character, particularly here in their love, in their sacrifice, in their giving. Uh, we, we looked last time in First Timothy 3 about the qualifications for an elder, an elder pastor, right? And he's above reproach, and he's the husband of one wife, and he's self-controlled, and he's, he's managing his home, and all, all these character qualities. And the first thing we understand as a Christian husband, that, that the calling is to be like Christ in that. He's to be a a loving, sacrificial 
husband. Look, look at this, verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. What does that mean? That a husband would sanctify his wife. What's that? It's set apart. That's, that's the background of the word. But, but what does that look like in a marriage? What's that? Protection. Okay. Worship. Yeah, th- those are all good things. Um, sanctifying means that a husband takes personal responsibility for the spiritual health of his wife. Just like, just like Jesus is working in each of us right now to grow us and mature us and change us and, and make us more like himself. That, that husbanding is about, you, you can't be a godly husband if you're immature in Christ. You can't, because that's the picture. That, that's the model. First uh, Timothy 3, we looked at that text last time. Other passages, uh, Titus, the one another passages, right? Love one another, encourage one another, be patient with one another. Uh, that, that famous passage in 1 Corinthians about love, love is patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it isn't proud, it isn't rude, it doesn't seek its own, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs, it doesn't rejoice in a righteousness, it, re- it rejoices with the truth. And what is that? That's a picture of Jesus. And we're called to be Christ-like in our character. And can I just say this? Because this is the conversation. Jesus although he was king of kings and lord of lords, although he's the second member of the Trinity, although he's the son of God, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he runs the universe to this very second. He never, ever, ever, ever uses that power and authority to mistreat people. That's what Christ-like character means. Jesus never uses that to oppress or take advantage or abuse or hurt others. So if there are so-called Christian husbands that are thinking in the name of Christian roles and godly uh, roles and biblical roles and complementarity that this is okay, they don't know Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't do that. He never does that. Christ-like character. And, And this is what, guys... Follow the logic here. This is what, when when the culture says the problem is power, the problem is authority. That's what, that's what we're hearing, right? The problem is there's a power differential. The problem is there shouldn't be authority. The problem is mismanagement. And, and their solution is to level the playing field. There is no authority. There is no, there's equal power. There are no role distinctions. We're saying, no, that's not the problem. The problem is not that that sometimes people have authority over us. The problem is not that sometimes in, in biblical roles people have power over us. The problem is the misuse of authority and power because it's not driven by Christ-likeness. Does that make sense? So we need to get that right. We need to reset on that and, and, and think about that. Christian husbands, as, as a derivative, Christian husbands should never misuse their power. And you know what, guys? It's our job as Christian men to model that and to preach that and to come alongside our other brothers and make sure that we're holding one another accountable that this doesn't happen. Christian husbands should never misuse their power. Those who do are sinning and not emulating Christ. And we need to call them out 
and call them to repentance. It's not Christ-like. What, 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 did, what does Paul say in Philippians? Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God, didn't consider equality of a God with thing to be grasped. What does he do? He empties himself. He takes the form of a bondservant. Why? To live and to die humbly considering others as more important than himself. Jesus used his power and authority to serve other people, didn't he? He used his power and authority to sacrifice himself for the well-being of humanity. And guys, that's our model. And with his grace and help, we can grow in that more each day. Secondly, we grow in Christ-like doctrine. A Christian Christian husband is not just like Christ in character, but Christ-like in doctrine. We see this in other passages, um, and and, uh, we we looked at it a little bit in in 1 Timothy last time, so we'll just wave our hands at it right now. But uh, Paul's going to tell Timothy to pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Because uh, qualified men in, in, in their homes and in the church are called to teach and lead Doctrine has to be something that they're, so, they're, they're sound and solid in because we, we're going to lead and teach and serve out of what we believe. Um, there, there is not a Christian man who should not view himself as a growing theologian. That's not, that's not you know just pastors and guys that teach in seminary that do that. That we are all growing theologians and if we are going to be sound in our husbanding and sound in our leading that has to start with being sound in our doctrine because doctrine drives everything doesn't it if you're new to grace bible church you're like man they sure talk a lot about doctrine that's right because it affects everything okay number four we need to pers- or, uh, uh, the third part here Christ-likeness in our character Christ-likeness in our doctrine and Christ-like in our role Um, and sadly it's not William Wallace that we look to look at this Christ-like leadership Christ-like leadership is defined in two ways in the Bible as a servant and as a shepherd Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 5, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's how Jesus leads. He sacrifices and leads as a servant. Men, that's how we lead. We don't lead by dictatorship. We don't lead by wielding power. We, we don't lead by barking out instructions. We lead by an example of sacrificial servanthood. Because that's what our Savior did. And that's how we follow Him. And also, the not just the model of a servant, but the model of a shepherd. A shepherd does what? He knows, he cares for, he protects the flock. That's the leadership model we see in Psalm 23. That's what Jesus tells us about Himself in John 10. He says, I am that good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. So we see that same protection that same nourishment that same care so so here's what we have to say guys here's what we have to say as a church christ-like leadership is not primarily about power and authority but about serving others for their benefit like jesus christian men should only use their power and authority to protect provide nurture and care for others yes power and authority are appropriate to be used 
I mean, think right now. Think how Jesus uses his all-knowingness <laughs> to care for us right now. Because he knows everything about us, he's able to care for us better, isn't he? Because he's all-powerful, he's able to help us. He's able to provide. He's able to, to save from danger. He's able to intervene, right? See, Jesus uses his authority and his power not to abuse, not, not to uh, enslave, but to care and to nurture and provide. And so we, we say that authority and power is not the issue. It's the abuse of authority and power that's the issue. So we let those things serve us. I thought someone had a question here. So, so what we do is, is, is we, let, we let power in. Uh, hang on here. There we go. I think that was Ruth. All right. So, so Christ-like leadership is not primarily about power and authority, but about serving others for their benefit. Like Jesus, Christian men should only use their power and authority to protect, provide, nurture, and care for others. Right? We practice Christ-like love. As we look in, in back to Ephesians, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for it. It's a sacrificial love that he might, that he might sanctify her. It's a sanctifying love. It, gro- it grows her spiritually. And notice this, that he might nourish and cherish her just as Christ does the church. That, that, that a love that a husband has for his wife, modeled by Christ, means that he's nourishing, he's providing, he's cherishing. G- guys, th- this is... Christian masculinity, male masculinity, is a bold gentleness. That's what it is. It's, it's, not, it's not femininity, it's not this, this mamby-pamby, you know, passive, uh, impotent sort of guy that's just kind of... Not, no, no, no. Christian men are strong, but they're gentle, just like Christ. I feel like a Lutheran standing over here and teaching the pulpits here, but the, anyway, um, right? Do, do you see? And guys, there's this major reset that we have to have. What is a Christian man? Uh, sadly, we can't look to John Wayne movies and Braveheart to get an example of what that's like. It's a strong, bold, courageous, gentleness, and nurturing and servant leadership. That's what it is. And again, we could, we need to say more about that sometime, but we need to move on. Okay. So with that in mind, uh, and finally, a, a Christian man practices Christ-like learning. First Peter says, know your wife, get to know her, and that's going to allow you to serve her better. So we, we recognize those things. Okay. Talking very briefly about the wife's role. What's the wife's role? She's a helper. She's an honorer. And she's a home minister. This is not a path to oppression. This is not a path to dormancy of her giftedness and abilities. This is God's good design for a woman's flourishing. And we see that here. Going back to Genesis 2.18, being called the helper means she's uh, an assistant, right? She's a helper. It's the same word used to describe God all over the Old Testament. So it's not a derogatory term. It's a, it's a term of honor. It's a term of privilege that she would be uh, the helper to her husband. The wife's role is a complementary helper. 
And we see that in all sorts of different ways. Uh, Ladies, I just gave you some ideas here. Uh, How does a a, a woman, a Christian wife in a marriage, come alongside and help her husband? It happens relationally, by listening, encouraging, showing affection, friendship. It happens intellectually, making decisions, offering wisdom, perspective. Um, This is is a very robust role of being a helper. It happens in family, very practically, caring for and nurturing children. It happens vocationally, assisting a husband or helping provide income where there's need. It happens ministerially. They're co-laborers in gospel ministry and hospitality and serving in their church. It it happens physically around the house and projects and just practical things, bills that need to be paid and whatnot. Delegationally, other areas that arise out of a need or because of giftedness. A husband may say, you know what, my wife's way better at, at managing <clears throat> the family finances. And so he says, why don't you do that? She said, I'd love to do that. And so there you go. It, it, it's comprehensive in help. Uh, this is not, if we, if we read help as, as a lesser role, that, that's a little bit like saying the, the center on the football team who hikes the ball every play isn't very important. That's like saying the catcher. We're watching the World Series right now. The catcher that catches every ball that that pitcher throws. We get all the tension on the pitcher. Guess what? That catcher's working just as hard, isn't he? You need all the people on the team for the team to accomplish the goal. And that's what's going on in a home. She's also a home minister. And you, you may want to turn over to, if you're in Ephesians, just turn over a few pages to Titus. Um, Titus, the book of Titus parallels 1 Timothy quite a bit. You guys may be familiar with that. Uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral letters. And um, <clears throat> they're going to say a lot of the same things. Paul's writing to Timothy, who was the pastor at Ephesus. In Titus, he's writing to a guy named Titus, you guessed it, uh, who's at Crete and is involved in pastoral ministry there on the island of Crete. But notice what he says in chapter 2, verse 5, as he's exhorting the older, more mature women to shepherd and mentor and disciple the younger ladies. He, he, he says to them, uh, those older, more mature ladies, that they can encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible and pure and workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. <clears throat> so what, what Titus is saying, or what Paul is saying to Titus is, a home is the woman's main sphere of influence in ministry. You know, if we go back to Genesis, the family's the building block of society, right? That's what God invented, a husband and wife, and then they have kids, and that's a family. That's the building block of society. And it's absolutely essential that somebody is there on the ground making sure that the family is being influenced and cared for and built up and nurtured and provided for. And the main sphere where a godly wife exercises her leadership and her influence is in the home. And, and how is there, is there any more important a, a, a duty than that? And you wonder, you, you look at homes that are broken, you look at, at homes where uh, people are strung out on drugs or they're not married or, or there's uh, uh, assault and abuse going on, and then you look at these poor kids and go, what's happening? And that's what happens when you don't have a, a, a strong home like that. Though her family is her primary responsibility, this does not necessarily preclude her her from working outside the home. The P31 woman in in Proverbs shows us that, right? I mean, she's got a little side business going on. She's selling uh, belts and she considers a field and she buys it. And so it doesn't necessarily mean she's not allowed to work outside the home. It just means her home, her family is her primary responsibility. 
And she's also called to use her gifts to minister in the local church. And we see both men and women in the New Testament called to serve by using their gifts in the local church. Uh, the, the second way that, that we see a woman uh, using her influence is not just as a helper, but also as what we might call an honorer. It's hard to say, an honorer. Um, going back to Ephesians, these passages that we're familiar with, uh, we see in chapter 5, verse 22, uh, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. That, that, that word subject means to rank yourself under. You know this. It's a military term. It doesn't imply superiority or inferiority. It's, it, it, it implies a difference in rank, a difference in role. And a wife is, is in a sense, saluting the uniform as she ranks herself under her husband, whether he's a, a great and wonderful and godly husband or whether he's an unbelieving husband even, or, or a husband that's in process, a husband that's growing in the things of the Lord. She honors him and submits to him because that's the rank that God has given him. Notice a wife's submission, according to Ephesians 5 here, is modeled by the church to Christ. This is not some radical idea, but this is God's program for how the people of God submit to Christ himself. It's done as to the Lord, meaning a wife's submission is guided by Scripture. It's, it's guided by her thought that she's ultimately under Christ and submitting to him. It's pursued in every area. It's not a selective submission. It's a comprehensive submission. And it's, it's paired, submission is paired with a respectful or honoring attitude uh, in that. that um, this is not a sort of grin and bear it submission. This is a, a submission that comes from the heart as she respects and shows honor to her husband. It's so important we know what submission means and doesn't mean. I just threw up some ideas here about what submission does not mean. Okay, It doesn't mean she's a slave in the home or a lesser person. It doesn't mean she worships her husband or always agrees with him. It doesn't mean she never tries to influence her husband. In fact, that's her main role. Her role is to influence her husband in godliness. But, but the idea that you know, she's just kind of a, the, the doormat in the marriage, that that's not a biblical idea at all. It doesn't mean she gives up independent thought. It doesn't mean she can't have her own opinions. <clears throat> it does not mean she gives into every demand from the husband. It doesn't mean she does not use her gifts and talents. It, mean, it does not mean she lives in fear. A wife's role is not intended to be something that's driven by fear, but rather a love for God and a love for her husband. And it does not mean believing her husband is infallible. Uh, some of your wives may be reading this laughing going, I never, I never deal with that. Uh, so, uh, but just an idea that that's what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean? Uh, I can't do better than, than John Piper and Wayne Grudem in their book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. <clears throat> Biblical submission for the wife is the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help her carry it through according to her gifts. It is a voluntary commitment on the part of the wife to joyfully live out the role God has called her to by following her husband's leadership. It means she shows appropriate respect and honor to her husband. It means she does not compete for the leadership role God has granted to her husband. She's, she's working together, but... <coughs> excuse me. She, she's... She's helping him and following him and working with him. She's not competing. She's not always grabbing the steering wheel of leadership in their relationship. Uh, this is important, too, to say. Submission is not dictated to or demanded by the husband. 
In fact, guys, uh, it is wrong to do that. It's wrong to say, the Bible says you need to submit, you need to submit. I think that a, a godly man recognizes that his wife has the more difficult role, and he says, you follow me as I follow Christ. Um, it's not something that's dictated or demanded. It's freely given by a wife to her husband out of her love for God and her desire to honor the role that God has given her husband in her life. We need to say this too. <clears throat> this is something we need to correct. Submission does not mean a wife should do nothing if her husband is abusing her. Submission does not mean that a wife should do nothing if her husband is abusing her. It is good and right for her to remember what the Proverbs say, that a, that a, a prudent man sees evil and flees. Right? That's what a woman needs to do in a situation like that. That's why Romans says there are authorities. When a crime is being committed, those authorities, those police, those law enforcement are there to help protect in situations where violence is occurring in the home. Hebrews 13 reminds us of godly leaders, godly elders. And the elders, the pastors of this church, part of their protection of the flock of God is to make sure that people are not being abused in their relationships. And if we find out about that, we're going to intervene to protect the people involved. And so on and so forth. Uh, So submission doesn't mean... (coughs) Excuse me, guys. Uh, Submission does not mean a wife should do nothing if her husband is abusing her. And finally, uh, we, we don't have time to look at Peter, but Peter says basically uh, a wife should minister to her husband <coughs> I'm almost done. I can get through this. It says that a wife primarily influences her husband not through her words, but through her example. And so it doesn't mean a wife can't engage her husband verbally. What it does mean is that a wife's godly example exhibits stronger influence than her words, and thus her character should be the main focus. Okay? So, biblical complementarity, equal yet different. We need to live out these roles, guys. That's how we're going to honor Christ, is by living out these roles and then to teach and help correct some of the abuses and perversions of these roles and to help people to see the problem is not what God says in the text. The problem is that those rules, those roles have been perverted and distorted and we need to get back on track and live, that, live those roles and teach those roles uh, for God's glory. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the time in your word. It's been brief and, and, and really too short, but... Um, will you help us as men and women under Christ to live out these things and to model these roles and to teach and shepherd and help others that are wrestling with these larger topics right now? Uh, Lord, we, we want to help people that have genuinely been abused under the guise of biblical roles. We want to tell them that that's wrong and sinful. We want to tell them that God hates that when that happens and yet lead them back to see that that is not what you have ordained for men and women. Uh, Lord, make us sensitive and gentle to these issues and yet make us bold and 
faithful to live out the true Christ-like roles that you've laid out for us as both men and women. Uh, We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.